Hello and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. It is February and during this month we celebrate African American history. And today we'll be learning more about Hezekiah Easter, the first African American to be elected to office here in Rockland, and a true Renaissance man. My guest is the author, Elizabeth Vallone, who has recently published a book entitled Just Call Me Lucky, about Hezekiah Easter. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blavelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places and a designated New York State Path Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland County with the public. And as a private, nonprofit institution, not a county or state agency, the Historical Society of Rockland County depends on charitable contributions to fulfill its educational and preservation missions. We hope you will consider making a financial contribution. You can do that safely online by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org and clicking the Donate button at the top of the landing page. We'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters of the Historical Society of Rockland County. At this time, I'd like to remind our listeners that this is a call-in show, and we welcome your phone calls. Our number here is 845-429-1700. That number again is 845-429-1700. Before we begin speaking about Hezekiah Easter, Elizabeth, could you take a moment just to tell our listeners a bit about your background? I uh, was a teacher for many, many years, uh, but I, uh, I started taking writing courses when I was 40 and then started writing, and I chose historical fiction, which is my favorite. What inspired you to become a writer? Oh, well, that's a very interesting story. Really, it goes back to junior high. My friends and I used to write episodes for The Man from Uncle in the Big Valley, our favorite TV shows. That was freshman, uh, that was junior high. And then uh, freshman year, my English teacher had the class submit essays to a children's magazine. One of my essays was printed, and that kind of planted the seed. I always thought books were wonderful, transporting you to different places and times. It was power. I guess I wanted power. And why historical fiction? Well, I was a reader from the time I was very young, and I read all different genres, but biographies and historical fiction was my favorite, so it was, that's what I love, so that's why I ended up writing historical fiction. In this case, you're doing a biography. What made you change in this case? It just struck me like a bolt of lightning that I needed to do this. I worked at Nyack Junior High uh, with Ruth Easter, Hezzy's wife, and I also volunteered for the success teams. She suggested I get Hezzy to speak to the students. I sat in the back of the room, and as he told his story, I was absolutely mesmerized. I said to myself, someone should write about this. This man's story must be told. So I started writing it. And you made the interesting choice of writing it in the first person. Tell us why you did that. Well, uh, writing in first person is very intimate because you feel like you're getting into somebody's skin. 
I wanted to write a work of creative nonfiction to tell Hezzy's story. I found it easier for me to do it that way than in straight third person. Once I started, the story kind of had a magic to it, so I continued uh, in first person. It was like Hezzy was telling his story, just like when I sat at the success teams. It was just a perfect fit for me. Lately, there's been some controversy about who's allowed to tell whose story. As you learn more about that, what are your thoughts on your choice of writing the book this way? Well, when I first wrote the book, that was 16 years ago, and I didn't know that writing in first person would become controversial. When it looked like it was going to be published, it was suggested that I change it to third person, and I did try and the story lost all its magic. It became very dull. You know, as a writer, you have to make difficult choices, and I decided to keep it the way I originally wrote it. You know, many authors have this problem. The great Stephen Crane was condemned for his use of everyday speech in Red Badge of Courage. At the time, that was frowned upon in literature. Well, his work became a classic. I, I don't have any of those aspirations, but I just didn't want to lose the magic. Tell us a little bit about how you came to know Hezekiah Easter. Well, I worked with Ruth Easter at Nyack Junior High when it was Nyack Junior High. Now it's a middle school. And uh, I was talking to her about the success teams, and she just said Hezzy would be a perfect fit to come speak to the, the group, and, and that's when I met him. And his wife, Ruth, was equally fascinating, wasn't she? Oh, yes. Ruth was the sweetest, kindest person. She hobnobbed with all kinds of people, rich, poor, black, white. She was a personal friend of Isabel Savelle, the environmentalist. I don't know if anybody remembers her. And Helen Hayes, who she knew through the library board. She was on many committees. She was very active in NIAC. And on September 19, 1994, Jean Pardo did an extensive oral history interview with Hezekiah Easter about his life. Did you use that at all as source material for your book? Well, I wish I had known, but I didn't know about Jean Pardo's oral history when I began writing the book, nor when I finished writing the book. I just learned about it when I was workshopping the book just before I put it out. But no, the oral history was not my resource. What other sources helped you along the way? Well, John Murphy was a county legislator with Hesse, and they were very close friends. He was very helpful. Uh, Fawn Clay, Ruth's best friend, Jack Geist, Hesse's close childhood friend, his sons, the parish secretary at Pilgrim Baptist Church. I can't remember her name because it was 16 years ago. So you have been working on this for a long time, 16 years. What prompted you to publish it now? Well, the book was languishing for so long, and every time it was going to be picked up, something happened. And then I got busy with my other works, and it was on the back burner for years. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'll spend my own money. I'll self-publish it. And that's why it came out. Talk about the title, Just Call Me Lucky. Was that always what you thought the title would be? I didn't have the title until I decided to publish it. I realized when I was thinking about what to call it, that Hesse had a fair amount of luck in his life. And his father predicted, his father said, 
when he was born, I know this boy is going to be lucky. And he did, he did have luck. When he was in uh, World War II, his ship was supposed to land on Normandy Beach on D-Day. And if he did, he probably would not have survived. But his ship had to remain at sea because of the inclement weather that made all the difference. He chose to enroll in German language in high school. Not many kids, black or white, enrolled in German in high school. But he became proficient. And this proficiency got him a plum job in the army. No more digging ditches and carrying dead bodies. He only had six saxophone lessons, and somehow or another he landed a plum job in, during the war in a jazz band. I'd say that's pretty lucky. The book begins with his earliest experiences. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of the story. Well, has he explained to me that he was born in Suffolk, Virginia, and he was encouraged, his father was encouraged, he was a little boy, tiny little boy. His father was encouraged to come up to Rockland County to work. He would uh, make double the money. Believe me, it was a pittance, even at double salary. And it worked out. His father was a very hard worker, and he picked up construction jobs or any kind of job. He started a wood yard and delivered all over Rockland County, and he provided well for his family. You know, as they arrived in Nyack, it was a big change. It appears from the book that Hezekiah had an incredibly optimistic outlook all the time. Am I right about that? Yes, yes. He was a very, he, he was a very optimistic person. Everything wasn't perfect when they got to Ma- uh, Nyack after they arrived. The family was hit with two tragedies. Hezzy lost his older brother and his younger brother over a very short period of time. Uh, the family leaned on their faith at Pilgrim Baptist Church and never let the deaths depressed them. They, they carried on. His parents did not let, and, and Hezzy too, did not let difficulties and hate infect them, and neither did Hezzy. If it's all right, I'd love to listen to a little bit of Hezekiah speaking about his life as we continue to talk about your book. We thank the Nyack Library for allowing us to use these clips. This is, again, part of a large oral history interview that was done in 1994 by Jean Pardo. So we're going to listen to the first clip, which reflects his positive, fun-loving outlook from his childhood as he speaks about bicycles and his dad's car. And then after this two-minute clip, you can talk a little bit about it. So here's our first clip. We were still on uh, Depew Avenue, so this has to be between 1929 and 1932. Uh, my father, having his knowledge about bicycles, we got an old bicycle frame somebody had thrown away, and we bought some, a wheel. My father put the spokes in the wheel and made us a bike. He made a bike for my brother, my older brother, Linwood. I never forget, we painted it. Green, hey, blue green bike. <laughs> <laughs> Red wheels, you know. Great. And we used to ride around. We lived on the Pew Avenue, and he'd give us a ride. He, he, he learned to ride uh, up the Pew Avenue, around uh, Railroad Avenue, into Hudson Avenue, mm-hmm. back around uh, Liberty Street, back up. You know, okay? Yeah. Then now it's my turn. We all we take turns riding that bike. We never had a new bike. Never had a new bike. We just wait. So, Tired? No, buy a tire. Or we got another frame and buy another. Never had a new bike. The 
first time we had a new bike was when my oldest son, Greg, was five years old, 1930 in a touring car with all of buddies going up to Bear Mountain with his dad? Well, you know, he had a very nice life because he did not dwell on what he didn't have. He dwelled on what he did have, a strong family, very good friends. One of the friends who was my source material, here I was interviewing Hezzy and he was there and he was Hezzy's driver, Hezzy couldn't see. So his friend from childhood would drive him to his doctor's appointments. And as you mentioned, his life wasn't rosy. There, there were those tragedies of the deaths of his brothers. That really was striking in the book. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking even writing it. If you've ever lost a family member, it's very difficult. You're listening to WRCR and WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. In honor of Black History Month, we're speaking with Elizabeth Vallone about her new book, Just Call Me Lucky, which is all about the life and times of Hezekiah Easter. We're live in the studio. We welcome your phone calls. If you have a comment or a question, please call us. The number here is 845-429-1700. That number again, 845-429-1700. We'll take another listen to another clip. Um, Hezekiah Easter was an excellent student scoring some of the highest marks at Nyack High School, and he was especially good at languages, as you mentioned. Let's listen to him talk about that, and then you can comment. By the way, when I was in the ninth grade, we had a subject called exploratory languages. They would uh, give us uh, uh, six months of, well, French, German, Latin, French, and German was taught at Nyack at that time. Uh, okay. Uh, so uh, I, uh, we, we had a little uh, French, and our French teacher was uh, Anna Mae Spears, and our German teacher was Gustav Ringwald. Would you believe that? Uh, I, I thought French was interesting, but German appealed to me more. So in my 10th year, I elected to take German one, and for, I guess, it's not, I, I really don't know, but I guess for some unknown uh, reason, languages, especially the German language, seem to come very easy for me, and, and uh, I enjoyed it. Huh? And, in fact, uh, I enjoyed it so much, and I was doing so well that Gus Mischkoff, Gus Rewalk, he sort of made me his uh, uh, apprentice uh, substitute teacher. 
school, you want me to come in to help some of the other people who were having problems with it. And really enjoy it. So I had German for three years, the 10th, 11th, and 12th. And when I had German three, I took the German regents that year, state regents in German, I got 99. And that was 1938 and 39 and 40. Little did I ever, I never realized, of course. Four years later, 1944, I was in Germany. I was a soldier in Germany. Seitdem ich war da eine in meiner Kombi, die Deutsche sprechen konnte, ich war Deutsch. Because I was the only one who could speak German, I was a German interpreter. Tell us a little bit about that. It is very, very interesting that he became a tutor because they say what you teach, you remember. You learn it better than, it, than trying any other way of learning something. So I think that's what made him become so strong in German because there was just so much reinforcement there. And if he hadn't taken German, boy, his life would have been so different. After high school, college really wasn't an option for Hezekiah Easter, was it? No, he said college was not an option for him or for many students, black or white. Firstly, he said many of the boys quit school after sophomore year and went into the trades. And also, college was considered something that rich people did. And, you know, there were a lot of people in Nyack who didn't have money. There were those that did, but there were many that didn't. And he said there were no scholarships. There was no one that would say, you know, maybe we can try the black colleges in Georgia. Perhaps they would have a scholarship. So he, it didn't, he didn't let it bother him. He, uh, I mean, he would have liked to have gone to college, definitely. But he just carried on. And then he was drafted, and he had an interesting three years in the Army. And I was interested to learn that he shipped out of Camp Shanks. Yes, yes, he uh, he did. In fact, when he landed at Camp Shanks, he was delighted because he could see his parents, he could see his friends. That's great. So he really was a Renaissance man. In addition to using his foreign languages in the Army, uh, we'll listen to the next clip where he talks about his musical abilities coming in handy in the Army as well. So let's listen to that two-minute clip, and then we'll have your comment. The end of March, mm-hmm. he came to me one day and said, Hey, Hez, he said, listen, you know, uh, we got that little group. And uh, uh, our first alto man is Greenlee. He's 38 years old, and that's when, if you were married and you were 38, you get out early. He said, things are going quite well. And so he's leaving because he's been able, he's got to leave. He said, so we're going to have an empty chair in the first alto saxophone. I understand you play, you play the horn. Well, I think I might have mentioned earlier how my father had bought a horn for me yeah. back when I, and when I was in the 10th grade. I used to just keep a lot of noise around the house. So I hadn't played the horn in a couple of years. I didn't touch it uh, in a couple of years. But uh, he said, uh, and I told Eddie this. I said, hey, I haven't blown that thing in a couple of years. I don't know if I played it. He said, well, listen, hey, come on. Uh, we have easy arrangements and uh, special duty. Can I go again? <laughs> I tell you, there's something in that name, Hezekiah Easton. That's a special thing. So uh, uh, I said, okay. So that night after supper, we went over to the special duties officer, and the lieutenant uh, handed me a brand new Busher. That's a very popular, known, well-made saxophone at that time. 
Buescher and Kahn were perhaps the better, and Selmer. Those were the three best instrument makers. You have the brand new Buescher in tissue paper yet. Wow. And the thing that I had was no beat of form. My father bought down on 48th Street. Oh, man. I'd say, look at this. An instrument is somewhat like roller skating. If you've ever done it, you know basically how to do it. So put the instrument together, what to read and so forth, and cut it together. And then start to sing it a little bit. This was bad. Uh, as always, uh, there were some little things that sort of from practice, you know, you automatically start to finger something. So I started to tune around a little bit, and, and the lieutenant was standing there watching me and so forth, and he and Eddie. And he said, well, okay, sure. From a horn away. So Eddie said, well, tomorrow morning we practice over at the, the building. He told me we practice. Said, Fine. You know, again, just call me lucky. He really, you know, he blew a few notes on that saxophone and he was in the he was in the band and and then he went on to study music at Juilliard and the Manhattan School of Music didn't he he did but uh, he never finished as he put it put it he wanted to set the world on fire with his music and the school wouldn't even let him open the matchbox it was totally the classics and this frustrated him to no end when he met his wife, Ruth, uh, that was a particularly joyous moment, wasn't it? Yes, he, uh, it was quite obvious. He truly adored his wife. He was ready to settle down when he met her, and it was like a perfect choice. And she was a sophisticated professional woman. She lived in Manhattan in proximity to some very important artists of the day. So let's listen to our next clip, which is Hezekiah Easter speaking about that, and then you can comment. This is a one-minute clip. I recognized a lot of those people there because once we went into that, you know, the way she lived, I used to go to visit with her. She lived in apartment 60. Right across the hall at 61 was... Uh, Honey Coles and Charlie Atkins, the dancers. 62 was Dizzy Gillespie and his wife on the same floor. Go upstairs to the seventh floor, there was the Prez. Dinah Washington was up there. Pigmeat Markham was there. Mm-hmm. I actually Pigmeat Markham up there. Apollo, he was big in the day up there. Yeah, Apollo, yeah, yeah. And so he read right about all these famous people. And one of the persons, by the way, uh, a couple of years after there, uh, after 46, like 47, 48, there was a singer, Al Hibbler. And Al Hibbler was taken on by the Duke. So he was singing with, uh, with Duke Ellington's orchestra at the big theaters downtown and so forth. Well, when Hibbler was in New York, he stayed at the Sawyer's residence. So my wife knew him since that time. Yeah, he, he was in proximity to great jazz musicians and performers. Yes, he certainly was. It was absolutely amazing when you think of all the people he and Ruth interfaced with regularly. Once married, uh, Ruth and Hezekiah were very involved in the Nyack community, weren't they? Oh, yes. They were into everything. Hezzy had his Mount Moore Cemetery. He had politics, uh, Liberty School PTA, Rockland Rotary, uh, the Abbott House, and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. That was a tough group of men. They referred to him as Zachariah. 
And uh, he didn't bother to correct them. He just played it cool. He knew they were bigots, and you can't correct someone like that. Getting involved in politics wasn't really something he sought out. Rather, he was sought after, wasn't he? Yes. He was looking for a new challenge, and uh, Peck Artepe suggested it to him. And he went to Ruth, and Ruth said, but Hezzy, if he asked you, he thinks you can win. So why don't you do it? And he did. And becoming a Nyack Village trustee was just the beginning of his political career, wasn't it? Oh, yes. He was involved in the Nyack Urban Agency, the Nyack Water Board. He was chairman of the Republican Party. He was on the Council for Alcohol and Drug Dependency. He was on the board for the Abbott House and the African American Historical Society. It's important to highlight his work to protect and preserve Mount Moore Cemetery. And for those people who don't know, that's the cemetery that sits inside the parking area of the Palisades Mall. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Mount Moore Cemetery is the oldest privately owned cemetery in the country. And it's the burial ground for African Americans since the Revolutionary War times. Hezzy's father was chairman and Hezzy picked up the post after his father passed. I really think many people ride by the cemetery and have no idea it's even there. I'm sorry I never got to meet Hezekiah Easter and his wife Ruth. They were really the best of Rockland County, weren't they? Oh, they were the best of Rockland County. They held voter registration drives at their home and invited people to register as Republicans and Democrats. I mean, could you imagine that happening today? That's amazing. Well, we're running low on time, and I just want to thank you, Elizabeth Vallone, for being here today. You'll be with us at the Historical Society this weekend, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Right. I will be at the Historical Society on Main Street in New City from 1 to 3 on the 23rd, Sunday the 23rd. So if you would like to talk some more or pick up a book, I'll be there. That's great. You can also visit our website at rocklandhistory.org to learn more about that book talk or about any of our other events and programs. We hope you will tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History on Monday, March 16th, when we'll celebrate Women's History Month by focusing on an exciting project that has been ongoing now for several years to install a women's monument in Central Park in Manhattan. Monumental Women is a nonprofit group that has successfully achieved this goal. Pam Elam, the group's president, and Meredith Bergman, the sculptor chosen to create this monumental statue, will join me here on Crossroads of Rockland History. I hope you will tune in. And we hope you will check our website, rocklandhistory.org, for a recording of this broadcast and everything we talked about. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com.